The title of this morning's message is, Is Your Butt in His Bucket? <laughs> now, now you may think, this is a very strange question. <laughs> but you won't forget it, will you? <laughs> It will make sense after I tell you a story. I have told the story before, and so it may sound very familiar to some of you. It is based on a true story about the first man to walk across a tightrope over Niagara Falls. I found this picture online. This is Charles Blondin. According to History Today, Charles Blondin became the first man to walk on a tightrope downstream from Niagara Falls across the gorge in 1859. Blondin's first crossing of the gorge at Niagara Falls was the most famous feat in a life packed with feats. <laughs> and like all the others, was painstakingly prepared, organized, and exploited for maximum publicity. Blondin took care to enlist the support of the Niagara Falls Gazette, which at first thought it was a hoax. Nobody could do that. Nobody can cross on a tightrope across the gorge at Niagara Falls, but <laughs> they found out he was serious. They decided he was crazy, but they found out he was serious, and they went along with it and published the event. The tightrope was taken across the river in a rowboat. It was more than three inches thick, and it sagged approximately 60 feet in the middle, so it had a steep slope. The distance across was a little over a thousand feet. Blondin offered to carry a volunteer over the gorge on his back. And unsurprisingly, that is, no one took him up on his offer. <laughs> on each side of the bank, they had bands playing music, celebrating this momentous feat. Really, they wanted to see him fall, but they were <laughs> cheering him on as he began crossing that day at 5.15 p.m. And he took his time over what he considered privately to be easy. It was easy for him to do this. So halfway through, he stopped, laid down, rested for a little bit, <laughs> and then he got back up and decided to stand on one leg for a while, <laughs> showing off just a little bit. <laughs> the crossing took him a little over 17 minutes. Then after a brief pause, a little bit of rest, he went back across the rope, only much faster. He was cheered by the crowds. The feat was reported all over America and Europe. Everybody knew who Charles Blondin was. In several later crossings, Blondin introduced variations to his little <laughs> circus. He carried his top-hatted manager across on his back. He crossed blindfolded. He crossed on stilts. He crossed in a gorilla costume. <laughs> and of course, he crossed pushing a wheelbarrow. The wheelbarrow, of course, is my favorite. Supposedly, it was quite common for Blondin to ask his audience, after seeing him complete the crossing on the tightrope with the balance bar, perfectly safety, when they saw what he could do, when he got to the other side, he would say, do you think I can go back safely? Well, he had just done it. So, of course, they're all like, well, of course you can do it. We just saw you. Go ahead and do it again. He goes, really, do you believe it, though? Well, of course we believe it. He says, okay, how about a volunteer? Put your butt in the bucket. <laughs> 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 
Do you believe? Really? <laughs> or do you just say you believe? Of course, no one volunteered. <laughs> because even though they saw him do it, they were not going to entrust their life in his bucket. <laughs> Would you have put your butt in that bucket? <laughs> no. <laughs> Nope, <laughs> neither would I, because he's just a man. And even though he's really good at walking a tightrope, he is not God. And he could not have ensured our safety. But to his credit, I could not find one instance where he ever fell off of a tightrope. <laughs> now, this story has been used probably a million times as an example of the difference in saying we trust God and actually putting our butt <laughs> in God's wheelbarrow, <laughs> so to speak. In other words, do we really trust in his abilities instead of our own? The ability I want us to look at today is God's ability to make us righteous and to keep us righteous. Do we truly believe that our Savior's righteousness is really all the righteousness we need to be saved and blessed? Have we put our butt in the bucket of his wheelbarrow of righteousness? Or do we actually believe that he needs us to help him keep us safe, keep us right in his sight? I think the Blondin story is really a good picture of what we actually do when we receive Jesus. We put ourselves in his hands, <laughs> in his bucket of righteousness, his bucket of right standing, and we believe in his ability to separate us from our sins and to make us righteous in his sight and to carry us like in a wheelbarrow <laughs> all the way through our lives in his very own righteousness. We either have Jesus's righteousness or we have no true righteousness at all. We are saved by his works, not any of our own. It is only in his name and righteousness that we are accepted before the throne of God. In Acts 4.12, it says this, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That name is Jesus, and only Jesus. It's Jesus plus nothing else. <laughs> it's not Jesus plus my obedience. It's not Jesus plus my tithing. It's not Jesus plus my Bible reading. It's not Jesus plus my going to church. And it's definitely not Jesus plus keeping the law. We need to realize regularly that it's just Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection that saves us and keeps us saved. It's all of Jesus and only Jesus that makes us right with the Father and keeps us right with the Father. None of our right-doing adds to our righteousness. We don't have Jesus's righteousness plus our righteousness. We can't add any righteousness to Jesus. And none of our wrongdoing takes away our righteousness before our Father because only Jesus himself is our righteousness, our right standing with our Father. Nothing I do or avoid doing adds to my righteousness. In other words, if we graded Jesus' righteousness as an A, nothing I can do can change it to an A+. Nothing I do adds to Jesus' right standing. In other words, Jesus gave us a 100% perfect <laughs> righteousness, and there's no extra credit 
<laughs> There's no doing something to get extra credit with God. <laughs> nothing we do can add to what Jesus has done, and nothing can take away from what Jesus has done. It's a free gift of right standing with God. Now, let's go back to our wheelbarrow analogy. When we believe in Jesus and his finished work on the cross, we are placed by God, metaphorically, <laughs> into the bucket of Jesus' righteousness. Jesus himself puts us in right standing with God. When we understand and accept this truth, we can rest from our own efforts to be right with God, knowing that Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done for us to be completely and eternally saved. If we believe that our right doing helps us make us righteous before our Father, it would be like us getting out of the bucket <laughs> of Jesus' righteousness and trying to carry Jesus in the bucket of his own righteousness back to the Father. This is what a lot of the body of Christ is doing. They think they have to get Jesus back to heaven. <laughs> Hanging on to Jesus, pushing Jesus along, working for Jesus, working hard to be righteous. And it's pretty silly <laughs> because all of that hard work amounts to nothing. It doesn't increase our Father's love. It doesn't increase our right standing. Nothing we do makes us more acceptable to Jesus or more acceptable to the Father. Many believers have this kind of understanding of their salvation. You see, they know Jesus' death brought the forgiveness of their sins. But they don't believe that it's stuck, <laughs> that it's a permanent salvation. They believe they have to help Jesus get across the divide <laughs> and into heaven, when actually we're already in heaven. We're already seated at the right hand of the Father. We're not helping Jesus do anything. <laughs> Jesus is helping us. A large percentage of the body of Christ thinks that our good works, our self-effort to be good and to try to be righteous in our behavior, changes how God sees us. They try to work for Jesus, believing that they will be blessed with God's favor because of their good or religious works. They still think they're earning God's approval and blessing. What they don't realize is that they are actually trying to bring to the Lord their own self-righteousness. Self-righteousness can be very sneaky in the life of a believer. We can fall into self-righteousness without realizing it. And according to the Apostle Paul, self-righteousness actually frustrates the power of God's grace in our life. So it's a good idea, especially if we're upset with someone, <laughs> to make sure that we haven't inadvertently wandered over into self-righteous thinking, believing, and behaving. Because it's really easy to measure yourself against somebody else and find them lacking. <laughs> you don't do this as good as I do. <laughs> Self-righteousness. In other words, we need to make sure that our butt stays in Jesus' bucket of righteousness <laughs> and that we're trusting in his goodness, not our own. We see this truth in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. Here the Apostle Paul says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. The first thing we see here is that it is possible to frustrate the grace of God in our lives. 
What does that look like? <laughs> what does it mean to frustrate something? According to Webster's 1828, frustrate literally it means to break or interrupt as in a flow. Something is flowing and you break that flow. Hence, it means to defeat, to disappoint, to balk, to bring to nothing. As to frustrate a plan, a design or attempt, to frustrate the will or purpose of someone. To make no, to nullify, to render of no effect, to frustrate a conveyance or a deed. Put that all together, frustrate means we make something vain, ineffectual, useless, unprofitable, null, void, and of no effect. Why would we want to make the grace of God of no effect in our life? <laughs> so to frustrate the grace of God means to set it aside, to not make use of it, to make it ineffectual in our lives, of no effect in our lives, in favor, instead, of accessing grace, we go to our self-effort. We go to our own good works. Now, I know you never do that. <laughs> now, we know that unbelievers are always frustrating God's grace. That's easy. God has provided everything by grace. All they have to do is believe. And they say, no thanks, don't need it. If an unbeliever is asked if they believe in God and if they should be able to go to heaven, if they say, yeah, there's probably a God, how do you think you're going to get there? Well, I'm a good person. I don't need any grace. I don't need anyone to pay for my sins. I'm a good person. Of course, if there's a God, I'm going to heaven. That is self-righteousness. <laughs> but there's another kind of self-righteousness. Sometimes, if they believe there's a God, they have assumed that they are either good enough on their own or they are too bad for God to be able to forgive them anyway. Have you ever asked somebody to the church and they say, oh no, if I walked into church, the rafters would shake and the whole ceiling would fall in. Why? Because I am so powerfully bad. <laughs> they don't realize that they're actually self-righteous in their own bad behavior. It's still focusing on the self instead of on the grace. One of them believes they don't need grace, the grace of God because they see themselves as being good. And the other believes they have disqualified themselves for the grace of God because they are way too bad and irreparable. <laughs> Both beliefs are based on their own behavior and their own estimation of the value of what they do or don't do. And not on the value that God has placed on them by sending his own son to die in their place and to redeem them out of the power of sin and death. You see, it doesn't really matter which kind of self-righteousness they have. The results are the same. Grace is frustrated. Grace is made of no effect. Grace doesn't have the opportunity to do to them what grace wants to have done to them. It is stopped. It is made ineffective in their life, even though it's completely free for all who will believe. And it's all because of their own self-righteousness. Unbelievers see no reason for Jesus at all. They don't even want him in their bucket. <laughs> Unbelievers don't understand that their real problem is that they are dead. They are cut off from God as their life source. And if they die in that condition, they will find that they will not appreciate their eternal accommodations. <laughs> God doesn't want anyone to perish. That's why he took the sin, all of the sin of the whole world. 
on himself to the Lord Jesus Christ into death. So that whosoever, doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter how bad you are, you're a whosoever. Whosoever could be eternally saved, not temporarily saved till our next sin. In John chapter 10, beginning in verse 27, it says this, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal, not temporary, not until the next Passover, eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. The word man there is in italics because it doesn't belong there. The translators were trying to help. <laughs> Neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. Any what? Any anything. Not any sin. Not any addiction. Not any failure. Not any mistake. Nothing can take us out of Jesus' hands. And then he goes on, and well, by the way, not only are you in my hand, <laughs> but my Father, which give them, the sheep, to me, is greater than all. All what? He's greater than all sin, all people, all mistakes, all addictions, all failures, all everything. And no man, not there, <laughs> no thing, nothing is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So Jesus has us on in one hand, and Father has us in the other hand, and we ain't going nowhere. <laughs> he keeps us secure. A large portion of believers don't believe this. They don't believe that Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection is actually powerful enough, all on its own, to keep them saved and approved by God eternally. They truly believe that they must add their good or religious works to what Jesus has done in order to maintain what Jesus has done. And what ends up happening is they begin to frustrate or stop the flow of God's grace in their lives. God doesn't do this to them. They do it to themselves, not even recognizing what it is they're doing. If we look at our scripture again, Galatians 2.21, this is the King James, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. I want you to see it in two different other versions. The scripture version, 2009, says this. I do not set aside the favor of Elohim. For if righteousness is through Torah, the law, then Messiah died for naught. And in God's word translation, it says this. I don't reject God's kindness. If we receive God's approval by obeying laws, then Christ's death was pointless. What I want you to see and hear are the words favor, Elohim, kindness, and approval. Favor because we don't always get a good idea of what grace is when we read it, when it's just a word. But the word favor is really a good description of grace. When we ask a person for favor, we know that they are in no way obligated to do us that favor. <laughs> we understand that it's all up to that person's goodness and kindness and willingness. In the same way, that's what God is continuously offering us, free favors. God, I need a favor. <laughs> You're asking for grace. <laughs> God, I want free favors, favors that don't cost me anything. That's grace. Favors we can't buy or earn or trade for. All we have to do is believe in our Father's goodness and willingness and then receive his goodness of grace through faith. Now, I also like the word Elohim. 
It's one of the names of God from the Old Testament. It's the plural word for God, indicating God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God in his fullness wants us to live in the fullness of his grace. And you would think with that much God on the inside of us, Jesus could get us safely to the Father. <laughs> I like the word kindness as well in this, the God's word translation because kindness is the motive of God's free favor to us. The word favor emphasizes his freeness and willingness to give us his kindness. So both words are correct in translating the word grace, favor and kindness. Favor reveals what is given. Kindness reveals why it is given, which is why I personally like to define grace as God's absolutely free, loving kindness. And then I think the word approval is really important too. God's approval of us is not based on what we do. It's based on Jesus. Most believers do not believe this. They really think that if they have not been perfect in their performance, God does not approve of who they are. Now, God does not approve of what we do necessarily. If we're falling down, he's not for that. <laughs> he understands it, but he's not in favor of us falling down. But it doesn't change how he sees us. I look at the word approval in Webster's 1828. To like and to sustain as right. I like that. <laughs> he likes me <laughs> and he sustains my righteousness. He approves of me. He sees my righteousness as permanent. That's what God gives us as a gift. He gives us right standing as a gift. He likes who we are in our new creation identity, and he sustains his approval of us no matter what. He sustains his approval of us as being right with him because we are in Christ. In his eyes, we are always, always right with him. We live in a state of being made right and approved of by God through grace. It has nothing to do with our actions or our behavior. But often, devout believers with the best of intentions, set aside the free favor of God because they don't believe they deserve it. And of course they don't. <laughs> Nobody deserves free favors. <laughs> Nobody deserves kindness. So of course they don't deserve it. And they never will. And they never have to. See, but they disqualify themselves as approved by God if they haven't kept the law in some regard, like Sabbath keeping or tithing. They look to their own righteousness based on what they do. You see, our approval with God is never based on what we do or what we don't do. It is always, always, always based on the blood of the eternal Passover lamb, Jesus. It is his blood, his righteousness that we have. Paul is saying that if we could produce right standing, righteousness, or approval, you see, that's usually what happens with Christians. They go, yeah, I know Jesus saved me, but he doesn't approve of me unless my performance is perfect. And it's not true. They disqualify themselves as approved of God if they haven't kept the law in some regard. They look to their own righteousness, and they don't even know they're doing it. Our approval on God is always, always, always based on Jesus. So Paul says, even our approval is a gift based on Jesus' death. If we could be made right and kept right by doing or not doing, then there's no reason for Jesus to die. 
This is what a large part of the body of Christ does not understand. If we could be kept right with God by doing right stuff, just kept right. He makes us right, forgives us of our sin, and then they think they have to keep themselves right by their performance. But he says, it doesn't matter which one you're thinking of. If you think it, you make yourself right. You are self-righteous, <laughs> which gets you nothing <laughs> because it doesn't apprehend the grace of God that's available. Our approval by God is a gift, a free favor in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father has placed us permanently into the bucket of Christ's righteousness. He's not going to dump us out, ever. <laughs> in other words, our butt is in his bucket whether we believe it or not. You see, all these Christians that are trying to work so hard to please Jesus, they don't even realize that they've been placed permanently in Christ and that Jesus will never tip the bucket and dump them out. Ever. <laughs> but that is what they're afraid of. I didn't do it right, Jesus. You're going to dump me out. <laughs> Not going to happen. <laughs> Jesus is our right standing perpetually and permanently. That's what eternal means. It means perpetually. Every day, all day, and at all times. Jesus is our right standing. God never looks to our works or performance to see if we deserve his help or goodness. And that's why he gave us Jesus, so that he can perpetually, every day, all day, minister his life and his free favors to us, all as a gift. Jesus is always trying to help us because he knows we need his help. <laughs> our faith in what Jesus has done for us and as us and in our Father's goodness to us, we need it. We absolutely need it. We can't do without it. Our right standing with God has nothing, again, to do with our behavior and everything to do with our faith, our esteem of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You see, what Christians don't understand is that when they try to bring their good works to the Lord to make themselves right with God, they're saying what Jesus did is not enough for me to make me right and to keep me right. They're actually insulting Jesus' sacrifice. Now, that's not what they mean to do, but it is actually what happens when we think we're beyond repair <laughs> and we have to help God make us right. So when we try to make ourselves acceptable to God by the works of the law or works of religion, we frustrate or interrupt the flow of God's absolutely free loving kindness. Why? Because we say, no, thanks. I'm working hard for your favor. <laughs> He's like, no, you have to take it by faith. No, I'm working hard for your favor. No, here it is for free. Take it. And they say no. They subconsciously don't realize they're saying, no, I don't want to be approved by God by grace through faith. I want to work for it. I want you to be happy in my good works. We can't have faith in our own works and in Jesus's work at the same time. We're either trusting in what Jesus did, or we're trusting in what we do. But you're not doing both at the same time. That's why grace is frustrated. Grace is knocking on the door saying, you can have it for free, you can have it for free, you can have it for free. And they go, no, I have to prove myself. Wrong. <laughs> you can't prove yourself. You can never be approved apart from Christ. 
in Romans chapter 11, verse 6, the Apostle Paul is talking, and he, he's talking about Israel not being forsaken because of the new covenant, just because there's a new covenant, that the Jews are saved the same way the Gentiles are, by grace, through faith, apart from works. There's often, sometimes you'll hear teachers say, well, there's a different covenant for the Jews. No. One Messiah. One Passover lamb. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Everybody's saved the same way. Only one Messiah. Only one Savior. There is no extras coming later. Because <laughs> he's trying to tell the Jews, this is how this works. God does not accept your works as a means to be approved of. Period. And if by grace, then it is no more works. We could just stop right there. No more works. Nothing, none of our works have weight. <laughs> they don't buy anything. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. It sounds a little confusing, but what he's saying is that if God lets us bring our good works to him in order to be approved by him, that would be buying or earning his righteousness and approval. And that would not be free favor of his grace. So grace and works just don't mix for righteousness. It is never God's grace, Jesus' blood, and my good behavior. It's all Jesus and none of me. All I have to do is believe and receive. It's not what I do at all. It's not works plus grace. It's grace alone by faith alone. We see this truth also in very familiar passage, Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith. It is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that's the whole point. Works causes boasting. <laughs> that's exactly what happens to people. They start boasting about their good works being meritorious before God. They start to boast. Have you ever heard someone say like, I fasted for three weeks for that healing? I have. You know what they're saying? Jesus' blood was not enough. I had to get in there and work it out myself. Have you heard someone say, I'm a tither, so I know God will meet my need. Have you ever heard someone say that? I have. Does God bless what, what we give? Sure we do. But what they're saying is because, not because Jesus died for me, but because I gave, God has to take care of me. They're trusting in their giving, not in their Savior. <laughs> have you ever heard, I'm an intercessor. I know how to get a hold of God. I know how to get things done. I've heard these kinds of things. I've actually said some of these stupid things. <laughs> Christians don't realize that they're trusting in their doing instead of in the goodness of a good, good father. They're saying, I have to work hard on my father will keep his good things to himself. And it's never the truth. When men start thinking their works merit something, they start boasting. And boasting is self-righteous. Now, the problem with these kinds of statements is, and the people who say them believe that what they do changes God. And nothing we do changes God. <laughs> is fasting a good practice? Sure it is. Because fasting changes the heart of the one who fasts. Giving changes the heart of the one who gives. And praying changes the heart of the one who prays. 
It never changes God's mind about us. He's already made up his mind about us. He says, I've already made you completely right. You can't even make yourself unright, no matter how hard you try. <laughs> we cannot and do not manipulate God by what we do. We can't earn grace. We can't earn free favors. They're only apprehended by faith in Christ's work, not in our own works. When we think we have done something that enabled us to apprehend a favor from God, we take credit for it. I fasted. I prayed. I tithed. The focus isn't on what Jesus has already done to put our butt right in his blessing and to keep us there. We think that we have somehow made God merciful to us by what we did. And it's not true. It's on what we did to get God to move on our behalf. And so many Christians are crying out for revival to get God to move. Is God withholding revival? Is God up there going, no, 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 you guys can't handle revival. You're not good enough yet. No. But there's a whole bunch of people praying that way. Oh, God, please send revival. I used to pray this way all the time. <laughs> Spend all night at church praying for revival. We've got to storm heaven. We've got to bring God down. He's already here. <laughs> He's not coming from heaven. He already came. And then he came back to us in us. He's already here. Revival is inside of us. God's not bringing revival. We can't move God with what we do, what we pray, what we fast. We don't change him. He's already made up his mind. He says, you're right. You're righteous. You have everything in this new covenant. Everything belongs to you. The entire kingdom. If you want it, go get it. Believe for it. It's yours. God never withholds anything good. He has already given us everything for life and godliness. He hasn't withheld anything. And we don't earn anything from him. So self-righteousness can be kind of sneaky. It can be produced by doing good. <laughs> good, honest Christians who love Jesus working really hard, thinking God's mad at them and is withholding good things from them because they failed somewhere in their life. And the truth is they just don't trust in Jesus' sacrifice as being all-sufficient. There's also a second kind of sneaky self-righteousness, but it's produced by doing wrong. <laughs> or by not choosing to do the right thing. You see, when we condemn ourselves because of our failures or mistakes, when we fear that God will punish us for our sins, then we have entered into self-righteousness only in a negative kind of way. I used to beat myself up, I mean literally, beat myself up for days. Actually, I, I actually told God no once, and I beat myself up for it over for a year. At our past church, they would often have tongues and interpretation, but the pastor was the one that always had the interpretation because he was up on stage and everyone could hear him because he had a microphone. <laughs> and his son-in-law would often have Wednesday night services. And he said one time, I don't like to interpret. So he's letting everybody know, don't you be going giving the tongue because there ain't no one here is going to interpret it for you. So one night, God says, speak out in tongues. Oh, no. God, he doesn't like, he doesn't want to. 
And that's the way it works at this church. Only the person up on the stage gets to interpret. So I said, no. God's like, come on. No. Not going to go against the leadership. For a year, for an entire year, I was mad at myself because I make it a habit of never saying no to Jesus. <laughs> so saying no to Jesus did not sit well with me. It affected my self-righteousness. Why was I mad? Because I thought I made myself unrighteous by saying no. And of course, I'm the judge of whether or not I'm right. Right? <laughs> more often than we think, more often than we know, we convict ourselves, we condemn ourselves, we say we are not righteous and we don't deserve God's goodness. That's actually self-righteousness. Because we've declared ourselves to be the judge of what is and is not right. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. I don't have to beat myself up anymore. <laughs> Because I've come to understand that God's grace, his goodness, and his righteousness is all a gift. An unchangeable, non-refundable, non-returnable gift of his grace. I did absolutely nothing to deserve what he has given me. And I have over my life done lots of things to be disqualified from it. But praise God, it's not a works. Good or bad, it's of grace. It's all of grace through faith. I realized that my beating myself up was actually a form of self-righteousness. It was me deciding whether I was or was not right in the eyes of my father. Me putting my opinion above God's opinion. We do this <laughs> more often than we understand. We always convict ourselves. We always condemn ourselves when we fall short because we look at our doing and say, well, that's obviously who I am, and it's not. I finally realized how stupid it was. You see, I was actually trying to pay for the sins that Jesus already paid for. Why do we beat ourselves up? What is it in us that says sin must be punished? We have a sense of justice, but we think we're the ones that have to pay for our mistakes. We beat ourselves up, which does not help. <laughs> it does not help to beat you up. You will not change because you are mean to yourself. We change because God gives us the grace to change, the power to change. I didn't realize that I was actually insulting the blood sacrifice of Jesus by saying, Jesus, what you did is not enough. Now, it takes practice to do that. When you sin, the last thing you feel is righteous. <laughs> okay? But we still are. You see, we have to tell our own heart, God is greater than our heart. We have to tell our own heart, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. My Father loves me with an everlasting love, and he does free favors for me every minute of the day. I can pull on his free favors at any second. Trying to pay for our own sins is self-righteousness. It's us trying to make ourselves right again in our own sight. You see, People think, if I do all these good things, I will be right in God's sight. If I am really sorry, if I make promises, that will return me to rightness with God. No, <laughs> you never left rightness with God. What we're actually doing is trying to be right in our own eyes. And you know what? We fail. 
That's like Jesus' righteousness is so good. It never fails. We apologize over and over again, not because God's mad at us, but because we're mad at ourselves. We try to feel better by doing penance, by being really sorry, by being mad at ourselves, emotionally beating ourselves up for being so stupid or selfish. It's all based in self-righteousness. It's us trying to make ourselves right with God. Thinking somehow we got out of the bucket (laughs) and we have to push it now with Jesus on the inside. But the truth is, God himself has put us in the bucket of Jesus' righteousness. It is Jesus who carries us. You see, we know Jesus is in us. We sometimes forget that we're inside of him. I am a sandwich. (laughs) Jesus, me, and Jesus. (laughs) I am a sandwich full of God. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. For he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The word made is the important part. He has made us righteous. That righteousness never changes because it's not based on us. It's based on him. Jesus has already dealt with all of our sins and all of our sinfulness at the cross. We are now forgiven for all of our sins. And God no longer imputes our sins against us. Why doesn't he impute them against us? Because they're all already paid for. You see, paying for your sin is death. (laughs) It's not spankings. (laughs) It's not bad things happening. If we're going to pay for our sin, we have to die. Nobody's going to sign up for that. But that's the mentality. We have this old covenant mentality that something must die, something must pay. And the truth is, we have to go to God and say, God, you paid for this mess. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you that you paid for my mess. And you're not leaving me in it. We're all now forgiven of all of our sins. God no longer imputes our sins against us. You see, that's why he sat down. You see, if we had to go get cleansing from God every time, Jesus would be very busy. (laughs) He'd be very busy all the time dealing with sins. But the scripture tells us he's no longer dealing with sins, and he's not imputing our sins against us. We're the ones imputing sins against us. And it's wrong. It's self-righteous. When God made us righteous, he delivered us from trying to make ourselves righteous through keeping the laws. We have been delivered from the power and presence of sin through the blood of Jesus, but we have also been delivered from the law-keeping and self-righteousness. We have been delivered from having to make ourselves right through good or religious works. In Romans chapter 10, verse 3 and 4, it says this, For they, the Jews, being ignorant of God's righteousness, what kind of righteousness did they know? Self-righteousness. And going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Jesus took the law to the cross too. He took our sin and he took the law. (laughs) He took our ability to be right in our own sight with him. The Jews wanted to be right in their own sight through keeping the rules. They wanted to take pride in their own righteousness and their good doing. They didn't want to humble themselves and accept the fact 
that they could not be right enough in the sight of God. They didn't want to accept the fact that they needed a Savior who could both make them righteous and keep them righteous. Galatians 5.1 says this, Stand fast. Stand certainly. Stand consistently. Stand in what belongs to you because of Jesus. Stand therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Most Christians think this is talking about sin. Don't go back to your sinful ways. It's actually saying, don't you dare go back to trying to make yourself right by yourself. You have been delivered from self-righteousness and self-righteous behavior. You can't make yourself right anymore by what you do. This liberty is the freedom from trying to make ourselves right. You know how many years I struggled to consistently make myself right before God? It was hard work. It is hard to be a good Pharisee. It is lots of work. <laughs> lots of repenting, lots of being sorry. And I never understood that I was being self-righteous. The yoke of bondage isn't sin. The yoke of bondage is trying to produce your own righteousness by doing right things. The good news is we don't have to help Jesus make us righteous or keep us righteous. Our Father has given us a perfect righteousness, a perfect right standing that needs no help. We can't put Jesus in the bucket and push him along. He doesn't need any help. <laughs> we have the very righteousness of God himself in Christ Jesus. He is our Savior, and He is our Keeper. He keeps us. We just need to submit ourselves to the truth that our butt is already in His bucket of righteousness, <laughs> and nothing we do can change that. He is more than able to carry us safely throughout our entire life without dropping us off the tightrope of grace. Jesus will never drop you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Jesus is everything, and he has given us everything through Jesus. We have been made right by gift and by grace, so that when we fall, what do we do then? Submit ourselves to his truth. Jesus, I thank you that even though I failed, you count me righteous. You count me worthy of every blessing, of every help, of every grace. Because when we're falling down, what do we need? <laughs> Help, grace, free favors at any second and consistently. <laughs> we need his free favors consistently in our life. Amen? So Father God, I thank you for the truth that you crucified the law. That you crucified not only us and our sins, but you took the whole law system and threw it up there too. You've crucified the power of the law. And Father God, I thank you that you open our eyes to the truth when we're trying to make you happy, when you're already happy. When we try to make ourselves approved by you, but you've already approved us. Help us, Father God, to submit ourselves to the truth that you and you alone have made us righteous that you and you alone, as a gift, have approved of us, and you sustain our righteousness, that you approve of your work in us. Father God, we thank you for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and this wonderful system of salvation called grace. In Jesus' name, amen.